What is moral apologetics? Find out today as we're joined by guests Dr. David and Mary Beth Baggett as they discuss their latest book, The Morals of the Story, Good News About a Good God, on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while taking Christian truth into the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your host, Brian Chilton. We have a wonderful podcast on tap for you today. Uh, really looking forward uh, to this podcast and actually have been uh, for some time now. Uh, we have two very special guests uh, with us today on the podcast. Uh, we have with us uh, Drs. David and Mary Beth Baggett. Uh, Dr. David Baggett is the professor, professor excuse me, of the, of the School of Divinity. He received his uh, Ph.D. from Wayne State University, uh, his Master of Divinity from Asbury Theological Seminary and his Bachelor of Arts from the University of De- uh, Michigan Dearborn. Dr. Mary Beth Baggett uh, is a professor uh, of English. Uh, she received her PhD in Literature and Criticism from Indiana University of Pennsylvania, uh, her MA in English at Longwood University, and her uh, Bachelor of Science in English Education at Liberty University. Uh, we are just welcoming, uh, just uh, privileged to have both of them with us today, especially as they talk about uh, their latest book. Uh, which is the morals of the story, uh, good news about a good God. So we want to welcome with us today Drs. David and Mary Beth Baggett. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for having us. Always a, the privilege is all mine. Uh, as we always ask our first-time guests, uh, and we'll start with David if that's okay, uh, if you would tell us about your testimony about how you came to faith in Christ. Uh, sure. I was raised in the Methodist tradition, and uh, very early on, I started when I started listening to sermons. I said I'd start responding, you know, going to the altar and getting saved. And you know, as a, as a Methodist, it happened every week for numerous weeks. <laughs> I had very very little conception that uh, you know uh, of assurance. But uh, I think my my dad would look over at my mom when I was five years old, going up to confess my sins for that week, you know and ask, uh, well, well, what do you do this week, you know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I thus have believed in, in God uh, most all my life, came into a relationship uh, with Him early, and of course through the years there's been a lot of growth and ups and downs and all the rest, but uh, I've never really seriously doubted God's uh, existence, and uh, also I think raised in that particular tradition, I uh, had a, a firm conviction early on that God 
was a good God, that God really uh, loved us. And uh, that, I think, as it, as it turns out, has become uh, perhaps the central theme and motif of, of my uh, professional work. But I was raised in the Methodist tradition. The, the camp meeting tradition is very formative uh, in my in my uh, life experiences and growing up, and even still today. And Mary Beth and I have, have done another book, in fact, on uh, the camp meeting tradition. And uh, so, yeah, about 20... At about 20, I felt something like a call to ministry. Didn't exactly know what that looked like or what that entailed. Uh, eventually, I would go to seminary at Asbury there in Kentucky and had a great three years. And by the end of that, I prayed really hard about God's direction in, in my life. And you know, I felt like he was directing me toward uh, teaching more than preaching. And so I earned a PhD in philosophy. That had been my undergrad major. And I really enjoyed it. And being at Asbury and studying with guys like Jerry Walls really enabled me to see the connection between theology and philosophy more. And so uh, I work in uh, areas like ethics and uh, philosophical theology, philosophy, religion, uh, moral apologetics. And and that's um, what I get to do here. I'm very privileged at uh, Liberty here to teach master's level courses and PhD courses in uh, in religious epistemology and philosophy, religion. Uh, courses on the moral argument, and uh, it's a great fit. So that's my story. Amen. Uh, Mary Beth, same question to you. Uh, how did you come to faith in Christ? Sure. Um, I, too, was raised in a Christian family um, from very young. I don't remember ever not going to church. I, I know that my mother was raised in a Christian family as well and was very committed to that. We were one of those families that was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Awana, summer camps. Um, you know, it was it was very ingrained in my, my childhood. And so I don't remember a time where I wasn't being told Bible stories and um, being very familiar with, with Scripture. Um, I do remember after a Wednesday night service talking with my mom. I was very young. I was five. Um, and praying the sinner's prayer with her, um, understanding it at that time, you know, in the way that a five-year-old would, and 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 really genuinely meaning it. But of course, over the years, um, you learn more, you understand more. Um, you know, I, I very much resonate with that um, story of David's, where um, you know he does grow deeper in his faith, and and God really used. Um, a crisis point in my life when I was a young adult. Um, I think growing up in the church, sometimes it does become so familiar that you don't really realize how the truth of it, um, like the, the existential truth of it. And so a late um, teenage, early um, 20s experience, um, a lot of rebellion, trying to find myself and not, um, you know, when I get a little bit more freedom, um, trying to explore things on my own. Not that I ever rejected Christ, but but sometimes rejected the, the rules and um, what I felt was, was a little stifling. Um, but it did come to a point where, where I did get pregnant and um, was a, was unmarried, and it really was a, one of those changing points. You have to grow up very fast. I was 20, and um, that was a, a really defining moment for um, my faith, 
for um, really putting to me, okay, this really matters, you know, what you believe, um, what is your life worth, what is what is the meaning of it, what is the purpose of it. Um, I mean, it was a really, God really used it. Um, it's only God can redeem, redeem things. Of course, um, having a child... Um, it was it was a challenging time. I mean, I did raise my son, and um, really, <laughs> faith faith was essential, crucial um, to being able to um, really find my way. Uh, when I look back, I, I had written a blog post last year about this, and as my son graduated from college last year, and just you know, kind of measuring that gap between when he was a child and um, being being a young adult, and and myself you know, coming to this point now where I am, you know, in a, in a very secure career and have a very clear sense of purpose and really realizing where God has taken me. Sometimes when you go through those situations, you're almost just day by day trying to, you know, merely survive. So those moments where you're able to take stock, you really realize what God has done. And it's just sobering um, to, to really think back um, and just realize how, how God redeems and how um, just, just to feel the truth of it, to, to live the truth of it. And, and I do have that testimony and that story. And, and being able to teach at Liberty, um, you know, that's very much part of my story as well because I wasn't finished with college when I had my son. And so it was a, a question that was put to me to, um, you know, be determined to finish school, and um, at that time, I, I was taking an English class, and I realized, hey, this is something that I can do. This is something that I really enjoy, and so at that time, I did realize that I wanted to teach, that, that I felt a real calling, and it's just been further deepened um, as time has gone by, and and it is so, just so illuminating to realize how God can can so work behind the scenes when you don't even realize, because I, I see now ways that my own experience as being a young adult coming into my own and really having to grapple with my faith um, has really enabled me to minister to my own students, and, and I didn't even see that, and now I do see some of that and, and know that God, of course, is continuing to work um, in ways that I cannot fully understand, but it's just, it's just amazing to have, to have lived that. Well, amen, and what a testimony indeed. Uh, I, we have uh, one son, and it takes both of us to try to wrangle <laughs> him up. And, <laughs> and be, being a single mother uh, to earning your Ph.D., my goodness, that is an incredible, incredible testimony. And, uh, well, it what? is interesting because um, David and I have been married six years. We just celebrated our sixth anniversary. Happy anniversary. Um, yes. Thank you. And he actually had been working at Liberty a um, few years before that. I can't remember exactly how many before we met. And, and sometimes we think, you know, it's so interesting that we didn't meet until after. But I do think in, in God's providence, I think that was very much part of not obviously knowing everything, but I did finish the PhD and then we pretty much met right after that. Wow. <laughs> so I do, I do kind of see God's hand in so much and there's no way that my life would, would be possible without God really working through it. I do know that. Amen. Amen. Man. 
that just gave me cold chills. I mean, just 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 thinking about someone who's who's been able to be a single mother, uh, raising a son, and then again, you know, like you say, you know, working towards earning, achieving a PhD program, and 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 um, and and go go and to teach. I mean, that's just absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, I appreciate it, but again, I do really think that is just a testimony of God's grace. It really is. Amen. Yeah. Well, talking about the moral argument, uh, we we have listeners from all, all different spectrums of of education. So, if you would uh, tell us about what the moral argument is, the basic idea behind moral arguments, and the task of uh, of moral argumentation. Okay, so the moral argument usually for for God's existence. Uh, sometimes it comes in the form of a, an argument for immortality. Or something like that. You find that in the manual Kant and others. But a moral argument for God is basically the idea that uh, morality provides a certain kind of evidence that points in the direction of God's existence. Either God is the only explanation of the relevant moral facts under consideration, or the best explanation, or these moral facts are more likely on theism than atheism. Um, you, you can couch it in different ways, but that's the basic idea that we can kind of get a, a window of insight into ultimate reality by giving a careful, uh, painstaking look at the moral evidence that we have at our disposal. So as I see it, there are three basic tasks. You have to kind of predicate the whole thing on some sort of moral realism. In other words, there really have to be these moral facts out there in need of explanation. And often today, what I'm finding in discussion with my secular friends is that they'll they'll resist on that score by subtly sort of domesticating and watering down the categories of morality. So I, I suggest that we have to take a really careful look at what the moral evidence really is. And then, uh, secondly, we have to make the case for some sort of theistic ethic. In other words, uh, God really can't explain these things very well, and uh, and, and here's how, and you, you have to sort of flesh that out and take on objections and, and whatnot. And then because of this comparative component, since we're say, talking about the, the better explanation or the best explanation or the only explanation, you have to contrast your various secular ethical theories and you have to sort of underscore their deficiencies, their shortcomings and um, that sort of thing. So in, in that way, you sort of argue for the superior explanatory power of the theistic ethic over that secular or atheistic ethic. But those are the three tasks kind of behind the moral argument. And again, it's all based on this idea that we can get an, an insight into metaphysics, into ultimate reality, through the use of morality by, by considering that particular body of evidence. And uh, often I think um, what happens nowadays is that people sort of decide their metaphysics first, and then they fit their morality into it. So suppose they decide to be, become an atheist, then they look at morality and they rest content with a, a deflationary or reductionist kind of analysis, because it makes sense given the limited resources at their disposal, right? The moral argument instead says, no, in order to understand ultimate reality, part of the evidence that you've got to consider comes from morality. And the moral argument suggests that we do this in a very careful, painstaking kind of way, and that when we do, we really do find that the evidence points toward uh, the existence of a good and loving God. Amen. 
So, so um, in in your book, you talk about uh, some comparisons and contrasts that one finds between uh, Socrates and Paul, and I find this very interesting because I'm uh, preaching a series of messages through the book of Acts, and uh, and and have just just come to Acts chapter 17. Uh, where Paul goes to Athens and begins to um, to deliver his address uh, there to the Athenians. So, so what are the, some of the comparisons and contrasts that you find between uh, Socrates and Paul? Yeah, it, it was it was fortuitous and uh, serendipitous. Uh, some some years back, I happened to be reading uh, Socrates' Apology at the same time I read uh, Acts seventeen. And uh, the comparisons and contrasts really stood out to me for the for the first time. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of these. I can mention just a few. I mean, they're they're both in that context in that same location, you know, some hundreds of years apart, but uh, uh, deeply countercultural in what they're suggesting. Uh, both very comfortable and uh, challenging uh, prevailing beliefs. Um, they both, interestingly enough, talk about a coming reckoning. And so this is very much a, a, a moral category. There's a coming, coming reckoning for wrongdoing. And, uh, and you find this in Socrates just as you find it in Paul. Uh, it was fascinating. I, I had never noticed that uh, before. Um, and and uh, they both had uh, a strong sense of, of moral obligation. They both saw themselves as on a divine mission. But there was one a huge uh, difference between the two. And this I found to be the most interesting insight of all. Socrates was very well known, you know, when he kind of uh, challenged people with these questions. Uh, when he was challenged himself, he'd say, well, you know, I don't know. I, I just claim ignorance, right? But you're claiming to know, and I'm challenging you to provide the explanations. And, you know, they had a notoriously hard time doing that, and it didn't bode well for him uh, eventually, <laughs> right? But uh, interestingly enough, so in, in, in the same place, Athens, right? Known for Socrates, who says, you know, look, I don't know. I don't know the answers to these questions, right? Paradigmatic kind of skeptic in a certain respect with respect to a lot of these difficult uh, questions. Paul comes along in Acts 17, and when he's talking about the coming reckoning and, 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 and the like, and by the way, Socrates wasn't skeptical about that. He still did think there was going to be that coming reckoning. On that, they agreed, but on this, they disagreed. Socrates would say, it's the hour of ignorance, right? I don't know. You don't know, really. And you're claiming to know, but you don't. Paul says explicitly that the hour of ignorance is over wow. with the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. I mean, think about it. It was in, in Athens, right? So it, it's just a remarkable feature of that particular context for Paul to say this, the hour of ignorance is over. They had to remember Socrates. They had to. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you know, this, this uh, no, it's the hour of ignorance. We we can't answer these questions. And, and Paul said, actually, we can. Actually, we can. The hour of ignorance is over. Jesus is raised from the dead, and uh, it's a, it's a new ball game. You know, it's interesting because it seems like as as uh, Christians in this day and age, we're met with that same type of of. Um, answer by many people well you just can't know that something's true or you just can't know what what's right or wrong and and as christians we we also give the same answer it appears like paul that that the answer has been revealed ultimately through jesus christ i think that's right and you know a healthy dose of skepticism on certain questions of course is is good but 
skepticism can be overdone, and uh, in our in our fear to be uh, to be wrong, we can miss out on truth. So there, there's a delicate balance there. And if if the truth is there to be known, and you've got a rule of reasoning that precludes your coming to know it, you know it might be an irrational rule. Very well said. What? <laughs> Man, I've got to tell you, this is going to just completely change the way I read Acts chapter 17, so the people at Huntsville better be prepared. (laughs) Right. All right, Mary Beth, we'll direct this next question to you. What was the collaborative... I'm sorry, David, you have something else? Oh, no, that was me. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, What was the collaborative process like, and uh, how did both of your disciplines contribute to your work? Sure, and I can actually um, maybe jump off the Act 17 thing. Absolutely. Because Act 17 has always, well, maybe not always, <laughs> but, but probably for the last um, you know, 12, 13 years, I've thought about that, um, that chapter and the way that Paul engaged with culture as a model for the way that I've um, really been trying to work with my literature students, to um, investigate American literature is my area, American literature after World War II. And of course, that time period um, since World War II, there was a real shift in terms of um, content, um, you know, questions that are posed, a lot of real attempts at transgression in um, just the, the material that's presented. If you, know, if you think about the 60s, for example, um, a lot of challenging norms and things like that, um, and and that that's been the material that I've been the most interested in because it really does lead up to our current moment, and I and I'm really just drawn to that to those questions of how do we engage culture, how do we reach people where they are, um, what is our role as Christians. Um, where can we find common ground? So these things have really been um, with me, you know, well before I had met David. And so um, I had approached them from a different angle. Um, David, of course, approaches them from a philosophical direction, but it's still dealing with the same kinds of questions. And so it's really been a natural collaboration. Um, Sometimes we say that our fields are adjacent. Um, they're obviously both in the humanities, um, both dealing with similar kinds of questions of human value and um, truth, goodness, um, but using different methods, um, dealing with different materials. But it's just been so illuminating um, to just see how complementary they are, uh, just in our conversations. It, it's just been natural from the beginning to continue to explore these same questions. So it's just, it, it makes a lot of sense just in the um, context of our relationship for, especially since we're both academics, um, for these collaborative processes to have just really naturally emerged. Um, as David mentioned before, we had done um, a history of a camp meeting in Michigan, one that, that his family um was connected to in his in his formative years. We had done a, a history of that camp meeting um, a few years back. I think it's been two years now that it since it's been published. Um, and in addition to that, we had done articles together, um, and of course, just naturally, we've done presentations together. And so this makes a lot of sense. 
so we work really well together. Um, as I think you had mentioned, I'm not sure um, David's presentation of the moral argument, I think, makes clear that the argument itself, um, in many ways, is, is a product of his work with Jerry Wall's um, two books um, out of Oxford University Press, and they have another one on the way. So that's the very academic, scholarly presentation of it. Um, so one of my roles, there, there's been a lot of different things, but one of my roles has been um, almost taking that material and making it a little bit more accessible. Not that David's not able to do that. Of course he is. Um, he's done a lot of work with philosophy and pop culture. But I think my um, experience with literature, um, with that engagement with culture, um, I've worked with Christ and pop culture. I continue to, to edit for them. Um, and so I bring a lot of um, skills and insights and personal experience. I think even the female experience also helps a little bit, um, being a male-female collaboration. Um, and, yeah, it's just been wonderful. We, we, it, it almost, in the final product, it's almost difficult sometimes to remember the origin, the, the, the origin of the idea. Um, and I think that's kind of the neatest thing of all, to, to look at something and kind of not be able to trace back exactly how it came together. <laughs> well, yeah, if I could just interject something real quick, Brian. Yeah, the, the nature of the collaboration is cool in that way that, you know, it's not like we just divided the labor like you do this bit and I do that bit and then we'll slap it together. It really was the case that both of us worked on all of it together. So it was kind of a deep integrative collaboration uh, that, that was very special, I think, as a result. Yeah, we were talking before the podcast about this very issue about th this book is very deep, but it's also very fun. I mean, I, I, I don't know that there have been many times where I've read a book, uh, an apologetics book, where I audibly laughed out loud at some of the quotes. <laughs> I mean, for instance, on, on page one, um, we, he talks about the book is not for everyone, dead people, for example, uh, but it's for everyone else, maybe except zombies. You know, <laughs> and that just leaps <laughs> off the page. And then the footnote really got me. <laughs> Readers may be tempted to read something um, unintended into our quotation marks. We, quotation mark, assure you that we would never, quotation mark, employ another quotation mark, extraneous <laughs> scare quotes. <laughs> like I said, I mean, I don't think there have been many times where I've read an apologetics book where I have literally laughed out loud, <laughs> you know, and, and being as deep as it is as well. I mean, so I think that says a lot about the importance of literature and, and communication in the apologetic endeavor. And the humor, I have to say, um, is definitely, I think, reflective of our relationship. Um, it was just such a joy, so much fun to be able to bring that in. Yeah. yeah and there's nothing highbrow about any of the humor. It's all pretty absurd, and uh, but that's pretty much... Uh, that's pretty much us. So it, it was a lot of a lot of fun. And by the way, for the record, um, my stepson Nathaniel did point out, and uh, so uh, kudos to him. I want to give him props. The zombies are dead people. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. We were redundant. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> but talking about talking about the type of humor that's just that's just my cup of tea right there. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> well, it actually it warms my heart <laughs> to hear that you laughed out loud. I I kind of love that. <laughs> yeah, truth be told, we usually when people are talking about the book, we're we're usually waiting with bated breath for them to affirm the humor first. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, I love it. I mean, because it's it's just it's so powerful. I mean, the depth again, the depth of information that's in the book and and the humor as well. It, it makes it really a fun read. But uh, well, that is one thing that we were thinking with regards to the humor is because there's some challenging material. It it adds levity. It um, takes a little um, of the weight off, <laughs> exactly. maybe encourages people to continue, even if maybe they are struggling with it a bit because they know that they'll get rewarded, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, what are some of the moral facts that need a, a robust explanation? Uh, how, how would you answer that? Yeah, and, and this, is, this is the real crux of the matter. Uh, because if there are not these substantive moral facts in need of uh, a good enough explanation, the moral argument is not going to get off the ground. But we're convinced that morality is to be taken uh, with real seriousness. So just think about it. I, I, th I think part of the challenge is that we're so accustomed to the ideas and categories of morality that we can too easily fall prey to, uh, to watering them down. And not and not realizing their deeper import, right? So, for example, now you, you make a moral decision. Suppose you make the wrong decision, and someone says, "Oh, that was the wrong decision. You should have done otherwise." That just presupposes that we could have done otherwise, right? Some sort of meaningful agency, some sort of substantive sense of free will. So, moral free will—that's going to be a moral fact in need of explanation. Our naturalist friends are going to have a much harder time accounting for genuine moral agency than we who believe in a God who created us with just such freedom that makes possible, among other things, say, love relationships and the like. Take the category of... I'm sorry? Oh, yeah, I just said amen. I agree wholeheartedly. Gotcha. Yeah, take the category of moral evil. Uh, not just uh, badness in the sense of pain, but actual moral evil, which tends to be more of a feature or characteristic uh, of the human heart on occasion, right, at our worst. Uh, that kind of substantive ontological category of moral evil is in need of a robust explanation, not just a, a simple, simplistic, superficial explanation, but a, a deep one. Uh, you have to account for it with the resources of your worldview in a natural, organic kind of way. So, so those are two examples, but other examples include moral values and moral rights and moral duties and moral knowledge and what I call moral faith, which involves both confidence that we can be both forgiven and changed for our, uh, our wrongdoings and then changed into better people and perhaps even hold out a realistic hope for complete moral transformation. And, and also, we have to have a firm conviction that happiness and holiness ultimately cohere and are consistent, because if they're not, then ultimately the enterprise of morality itself is not a fully stable, rational thing. There's going to be this fundamental disconnect. It's not going to be a fully rational thing to do if it's not ultimately in our uh, self-interest to do. So all of these are features, rich features, fertile features of the moral landscape in need of adequate explanation. So in the book, we give, uh, we kind of divide it up into a fourfold case where we uh, talk about moral facts, you know, like duties and uh, values and the like, uh, moral knowledge, 
moral transformation, and then what we call moral rationality. And we, we say that we can construct, essentially, a cumulative moral case uh, to, to, to argue that God indeed is the best explanation of each of these, and when you put them together, the case becomes all the stronger. Amen. Amen. So, Mary Beth, will direct this next question to you. How has delving into the moral argument contributed to your own understanding of God and the Christian walk? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because I had not, I was not familiar with um, ethics, morality, uh, the moral argument. I hadn't really thought about these issues in the way that David has. Um, it was all new to me, and of course, I didn't need moral argument um, as a non-believer would listen to it and think, this gives me good reasons to believe um, that there is a God, that he is good, um, to come to faith. So I, as a Christian, in these conversations with David, listening to him talk about his work, reading his books, um, I just realized that there's so much that I hadn't really thought about as a Christian that really does make me um, better understand who God is, um, have deeper, I think, deeper trust in that God. Um, uh, I think it, it married my um, emotional desires or um, experience with an intellectual understanding um, and that's one thing that David talks about with regards to the, the moral argument, that it speaks to both the head and the heart. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, um, as a believer coming to it, it really did speak to me um, in terms of just this real conviction that God is good and, and how it all fits together. That's one of the things that always strikes me when I think about it, when I have conversations with David about it. Um, that it all coheres, you know, the different facts that he was talking about in need of explanation. Theism, a theistic picture and a Christian theistic picture, it fits. There's not really something dangling that you have to kind of cut off. Um, it, it all goes together. And um, I think it's really just deepened my faith, and I, and I think deepened my trust. I remember... There was one um, one of the revisions that we had gone through. There were several, of course, but I remember going back through the um, moral, it was the moral obligations chapter, and there's a, a passage in it, a section in it that talks about the nature of authority and where does moral obligations, the authority to hold us to those obligations come from. And um, there's these, these reflections on um, there's just the nature of moral authority and the nature of God, um, and that it really makes sense if, if God truly is good, truly is all-powerful, truly is all-knowing. Um, and, and it just made me realize just anew. I, I, I had felt it before, but it, that this is a really strong sense of I think what it comes down to then is do I really believe that? I mean, it really puts the question to you 
of do you really believe that God is who he says he is? Um, because so often I think um, our willingness or unwillingness to follow his commands, um, because so, so often I think contemporary non-believers might start with those things, you know, something like homosexuality, for example, is a contemporary um, challenge. So they can sort of start with this, where if you start with God really is good, God really is all-loving, God really is all-powerful and all-knowing, if that's the truth, then what he says is in our best interest. And, and it really just all kind of came together for me, again, anew, because it had before, um, but really in a, in a deep a deep sense of just reminding me that this is really the crux of it, to have faith in him, to really trust him. If, if you believe that he is all-loving, you can trust him. Yeah, so th- those kinds of things, I think um, it's really helped me, again, better understand. I remember when I first met David, um, we were actually talking about this the other day, our, fir- our very first conversation, um, he brought up, some of his academic work, which sounds a little strange, but when you think about what his academic work is, um, it makes a lot of sense because it is so much at, at the heart of um, needing needing to believe. And, and, and the moral argument, I think, gives us good reason to, to believe um, that God really is a good God, really is a loving God. Um, and, and that's, I think, another to go back to our collaboration, I think that's another way in which we, we were deeply compatible just on that that issue because it was something that I think I, I deeply felt but did not have words and did not have categories to really put put to, if that makes sense. And I think that's such an important point because, um, y- you know, being, being in ministry, you, you see several people go through a lot of difficult situations. And I think sometimes... If we only grasp onto that knowledge that God is a good God, we may not understand why certain things are happening, but but to know that God still has our best interests at heart, I, I think there's a lot of power in that and and the allowance to help us to make it through uh, some very difficult things that may come our way, just holding on to that understanding that God is good. I think that's right. I think that's right. And it, and it lined up, I had mentioned my testimony before, it lined up very much with my experience. I mean, this is one of those things where um, um, I've shared with my, my own students that I, I feel it deep in my bones that this world is not right, right. but that it should be, you know. And, and this, you know, again, all these conversations that I've had with David, all of this investigation and this, this um, scholarly work, um, has really just helped me better understand. Um, of course, living it out still can be challenging, but it does give you, I think, um, more commitment to do so. Very well said. And more comfort. Yeah, more comfort, too. Amen. Very well said. Thank you. Now, talking about moral values, what are some of the options available when discussing moral values? And uh, for what case did you guys? What case did you guys defend? Yeah. Well, you know, backing up a little bit to Good God, when Jerry Walls and I wrote that book, we talked about uh, value from 
from different uh, directions. We, for example, talked about how God is good um, and all good and perfectly good and, 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 and loving and recognizably good and necessarily good. And ultimately, even, that there's some mysterious sense in which uh, we argued that God is the good. And uh, by the way, this this is not necessarily the position that someone has to embrace to uh, advance uh, a case for moral apologetics. This is our uh, a bit of our theistic ethics. And, uh, you know, believers can differ a little bit about the sense in which morality depends on God, the connection, say, between God and goodness and the like. So I'm not trying to impose this on every moral apologist out there. Uh, what what theistic ethicists of various stripes can agree on is that morality essentially depends on God, and that's all that you really need to advance the, the, the case for, for the moral argument. So that's kind of a cool thing to remember. But anyway, we didn't uh, focus on those things as much in, in our book, uh, because we talked about those aspects of value before, uh, nor did we uh, do much by way of comparing and contrasting uh, temporal goods with eternal goods. Uh, but that's an area that I, I want to work on some more in fleshing out this dimension of moral values. I think there's a lot of very interesting things to say about that. Just recently I've been reading uh, A.E. Taylor a lot. He's a guy who uh, did Gifford lectures uh decades and decades ago, on the moral argument. And a number of uh, great thinkers, uh, Oxford and Cambridge professors and the like, have done the Gifford lectures there in Scotland through the years uh, on the moral argument. And, and often it's the apex of their career, in fact, some of the uh, groundbreaking um, work. And uh, it, the moral argument has a very rich history in that way. But reading A.E. Taylor recently, he, he's had he, uh, such an impact on me in, in terms of thinking about eternal goods and the way in which the eternal goods do have a primacy over the temporal goods and in fact can uh, kind of imbue the temporal goods that we experience in this life with all the greater sacramental significance. And there's a lot to be said about all of that. Uh, another Taylor, Charles Taylor, uh, is written in a Secular Age about how we're living in a moment where uh, exclusive humanism is increasingly coming to the fore, this idea that the temporal goods are enough. The temporal values are all that we need, and uh, you know we can eschew the larger category of anything like uh, transcendent or, or spiritual or eternal goods. And uh, some of the some of the uh, dangers that uh, attend that uh, that move. Uh, I want to work in that area some more, but we didn't focus on that so much in this book. What we did here in speaking about the topic of values was speak specifically about human value, um, human equality, human dignity, uh, categories like that, and how from especially uh, not just a generally generically theistic perspective, but a specifically and distinctively Christian perspective, we have a lot to say. We have a lot of resources to appeal to, to make the case that people are valuable, that they have been created by a loving God, that they are loved by God, that they uh, that God desires for them nothing less than uh, glory, a relationship with him, an eternal joy. Um, C.S. Lewis once said, you've never met an ordinary person. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, we have so many reasons to take this seriously, and I think this is why uh, friends like um, uh, Corey Lotta and his wife, when they had a Down syndrome child, I mean, it, it was without hesitation. They, they, they embraced that child. They are loving that child, and 
it, it's just the most beautiful picture. You know, um, secular ethics ha- has a much harder time uh, accounting for why do that. I mean, why mm-hmm. put yourself through the extra challenges and such, right? But we have a robust account of why it is that a child like that has dignity and, and value and should be cherished. I mean, I think that speaks to us in our heart of hearts. I think that communicates something to us that we know, all of us, believers and unbelievers alike, to be true. And that is that is just an absolutely powerful moral piece of evidence, it seems to me, to suggest that there's more to life than meets the eye. There's, there's more to human beings than atoms and molecules, that ultimately reality is about relationality. It's about persons. Um, and Christian theism provides a powerful account of this. So th- that's just one little peek into the kind of thing that uh, we wanted to talk about and emphasize. Amen. I, l- I love the C.S. Lewis comment that, you know, talking about uh, no, no one's ordinary. I, I tell everyone I took an abnormal psycho- uh, psychology class to learn more about myself. So, <laughs> and so that does make you wonder if there is any such thing as normal with, you know, with people. But... <laughs> Uh, Mary Beth, your book has numerous, uh, and just to let our listeners know, we may need to divide our, our uh, this podcast into two because we want to certainly give uh, David and Mary Beth uh, the, the, the full extent to answer uh, many wonderful questions that we have in the book. Uh, but going back to Mary Due to the length of our conversation with Drs. David and Mary Beth Baggett, we'll need to segment our interview into two podcasts. This is Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast on bellatorchristie.com. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of bellatorchristie.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristie.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. You're going to change this world for Christ. Don't look around and wonder who it is. Say, God, make it me. Make it me. Because we're training champions. That's a part of the vision. Write the vision, make it plain. We're training champions to change the world. That vision of training champions for Christ to change the world is the foundation of Liberty University. It always has been, and it always will be. Everything we are today is built upon it. But while our vision hasn't changed since 1971, the world around us has. Fewer and fewer people understand what we mean when we say train champions for Christ. So we show them. We show them what authentic faith in Christ looks like through the lens of academics, athletics, 
through the way we have fun and the way we serve one another and the world. We show them that we the faithful, the bold, the united, and the brave are also we the creators, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, and the leaders. We the champions are committed to tackling the issues of our time with integrity and prayer. Our vision hasn't changed. It is strengthened, broadened, expanded. It has grown into over 550 programs of study, reaching into over 80 countries, uniting over 100,000 students into a beautifully diverse family with a singular vision. We the champions, in order to affirm our tradition of unwavering faith, ignite a passion for wisdom, challenge perspectives, inspire creativity, and pursue knowledge. Do resolve to be the voice for the voiceless, bring healing to the hurting, fight for the oppressed, defend freedom, defy stereotypes, and follow God's call wherever it may lead. Find out more about Liberty University by visiting liberty.edu.